Good morning. Happy Father's Day to everyone who is or had a father, right? I try to go, what do you talk about on Father's Day that would be interesting? If not to you, at least to me. And I didn't want to talk about my father, who might be of interest to me, but mostly my therapist, and certainly not of... <laughs> I love Frank. <laughs> Just, right, he just blurts it out. I, I love that. That's, that's great. So I thought I'd talk about the ultimate father, you know, the strict father God, and how dangerous that God is. And, and maybe, and we can talk about this later, but maybe how deeply ingrained in our psyches, even those of us who claim to be liberal, how deeply ingrained in our psyches this God idea may be. So let's start with, with the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible has a fundamental problem, and that is the God idea in that Bible, so it's, to me it's not history, it's just story, it's character, but the character of God, especially in the five books of Moses, is so strict that nobody can live up to his, and it's a he, right, that nobody can live up to his standard. And you find this right away in Genesis. God creates humanity, and a couple chapters later, God commits biocide. He wipes out humans, he wipes out animals, he's having a very grumpy day. <laughs> you know, if you're, you're Jim Pansy, that's one thing, but if you're the almighty strict father God, you have a bad day, it's called genocide. So, so God wipes out humanity, all but Noah and his family, and then he starts, you know, God, it starts all over again. But God is never satisfied. <clears throat> God could have said, you know, the people just aren't, the way I want them to be, but they're doing the best they can, and maybe I'll just forgive them and try to do a little better teaching them. Or God could have said, wow, I'm all-powerful, and look what I did. Maybe I need therapy. Or, or something that was more self-reflective than puny humans, God smash, right? But God doesn't. So the people who write these stories eventually realize that this story is, has no good ending. Right? There's no way that you're going to get this all-powerful, grumpy God to be the God that they really want, a God of love, a God of forgiveness. So they have to come up with some way to get away from the one into the other. And this happens in the first century. Now, there's a whole long history. The prophets try to do this. The early rabbis try to do this. But it comes to a head in the first century when you get the Jews who decide that God has a son and God's son is not like dad. So Jesus is a creation of the Jewish imagination, no less than, than God in the, in the five books of Moses is. So they created this other kind of deity. This was the new God for a new age. But it didn't work. There's something... And now I don't think it's the Jewish mindset. I think it's humans. We couldn't stand a God of love. I mean, we say, oh, God is love. We like to say that. But in fact, it doesn't play out that way. I mean, first of all, you have to crucify him. (laughs) So they couldn't imagine him surviving. So they had to have him crucified. But even if you didn't go in that direction, there's a whole psycho-spiritual commentary on what it means that, that 
This is Jack Miles. I don't know if you've ever read Jack Miles. His God, a biography, and then he wrote Christ, which is another biography, and now he's got Allah, uh, which is his third in a trilogy of, I mean, he calls them uh, biographies, but the characters in his mind are all fictitious, but it's a biography of these fictitious characters. And what he says is God realizes that God is so far gone to the dark side that the only thing God can do is commit suicide. And since you can't suicide the all-powerful, God becomes a person and then has Jesus crucified, and then that's supposed to be healing, so when Jesus is resurrected, Jesus is resurrected and God is transformed into this all-loving character. Maybe true, maybe not true, but even if it is true, it only lasts a couple of generations. And that's when Christianity slips right back into the strict father God. So originally when I was putting this together, I thought, well, Constantine is probably the place to, to locate this. That when uh, the emperor Constantine says that we're going to conquer the world in the name of in the sign of the cross, and, he makes, and when he does so, he makes Christianity the official law of the land, Christianity just flips into the strict father God modality. But maybe it happens even earlier. And there's a story in the book of Acts, I think, it's in, it's in Acts, where the early church, primarily Peter, is trying to raise funds from the new disciples of, of Jesus. And basically what they're supposed to do is give everything to the community. Right? They're, they're communists. <clears throat> everything belongs you know, in, uh, to the whole. And there's this couple, I forget all their names, but anyway, there's, there's a husband and wife who decide we're going to sell our property and we're going to give it to Peter. But they keep a little back for themselves. Because they, I guess you don't know why, but maybe they don't trust that Peter's going to give them enough to, to survive. So, yeah, we'll give them 80%, but we'll keep 20%, whatever it is. Peter hears about this. He calls the husband in first and says, did you give me all the money you got when you, say, when you sold your property, from the sale of your property? And the husband says, yeah. And then God strikes him dead. Because clearly that's not the case. So Peter has um, his, I don't know, gendarmes, whatever, carry the guy out and they bury him. His wife, the, dead, the now dead husband's uh, wife, doesn't know that her husband is dead. Then Peter calls her in, and she says, when your, your husband sold everything, did he give it all to us, or did he keep some back? And she says, no, of course, he, he gave it all to you. She also lies. Peter knows that she's lying, and then he reveals to her that he knows that she's lying, and he tells her that when her husband lied, her husband was struck dead, and now she will be struck dead, and she has a heart attack, and she dies. That's strict father God stuff, <laughs> right? That's all about fear and hierarchy and power and how you're going to impose, how you're going to control people's money, not always just money, but certainly money, later sexuality, but money, and use the scary strict father God to do it. So this is centuries before Constantine, so maybe they never really cleared their psyches of the strict father God. If gods are made in our image, which is my premise. If gods are made in our image, then we have in our psyche the strict father God, and we have a hard time rooting it out. So that's 
you can easily take that into what George Lakoff calls strict father God and strict father God morality, which he associates with conservative Christians, which I think is too narrow, but let's just go with it. So this is from, I'm going to read something to you from Lakoff. So this is, this is all quote. God, the strict father God of the most conservative among us, is the father and founder of America. Many conservatives start with a view of God that makes conservative ideology seem both natural and good. God is the ultimate strict father, all good and all powerful, at the top of a natural hierarchy in which morality is linked with power. God wants good people to be in charge. Virtue is to be rewarded with power. God, therefore, wants a hierarchical society in which there are moral authorities who should be obeyed in each domain. And it's individual and global, financial, all the different ways people operate. God makes laws, uh, commandments, defining right and wrong. One must have discipline to follow God's commandments. God is uh, punitive. He punishes those who don't follow his commandments and rewards those who do. Following God's laws takes discipline. Those who are disciplined enough to be moral are disciplined enough to become prosperous and powerful. That's how you know who God loves the most, because the rich are the the most powerful and most prosperous, and you can only get that way because you have, I don't know, surrendered maybe is too strong a word, but you've taken on the mantle of God's strict father morality, and God rewards you with, with power. That's, that's an easy shot. You know, I mean, I, I don't disagree with it necessarily, but it's an easy thing to say. And all you have to do is go on, you know, tele, tele, uh, you know watch TV, the tele, uh, televangelists on TV, or look at their radio stuff, and, and, you know, or on the Internet. And it's like, oh, that is so obvious. These people are trapped in the strict father morality, in the strict father God paradigm. We liberals, no, 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 that's not us, that, that's not us. So I was in D.C. last week. I was uh, part of a panel uh, about uh, commenting on this documentary called A Free Trip to Egypt. And some guy, some Egyptian guy, uh, Canadian Egyptian guy, uh, got this idea, just came to him, that if he could bring Americans to Egypt, he could help start a whole movement for world peace. Egyptians would see that Americans are not horrible. Americans would see that Egyptians are not terrorists, and we'd all get along. And it'd be this big, you know, kumbaya movement. So he, according to the movie, now I I, I met him, but I don't know, I don't know who really funded it. No one ever asked, no one ever told. That makes me nervous, but anyway. (laughs) He goes out to Trump rallies because he doesn't want Unitarians, right? Because there's no drama, (laughs) right? So he goes to Trump rallies with big cardboard sign and the cardboard sign simply says free trip to Egypt and that's the name of the movie. And he walks around free trip to Egypt and he's dressed sort of Arab-y, you know? He's got a keffiyeh sometimes and He's trying to be a little engaging or insightful or controversial <coughs> so that people will come over and talk to him. Most of the people who come over and talk to him are not interested in going to Egypt. 
I mean, I want to believe that if I saw someone with a sign that said, free trip to Egypt, I would at least check it out and say, if it's really free, I would like to go. <laughs> but, you know, maybe not, because maybe it's just, it's like people walk around, you know, I'll work for food. I don't give them money, and I don't give them a job. I don't believe them. I probably wouldn't believe a guy who says, you know, a free trip to Egypt. Being a little sarcastic here, but you get the idea. I'm not so easily convinced. But he got eight people to go with him. <clears throat> he got a police officer. He got um, three fundamentalist Christians. He got two very secular Jews, uh, and then just some assorted Americans who have no real, no, no identifying uh, characteristics. And they all went to Egypt. And, and the movie is sort of, a, sort of like just ugly American tourists. <laughs> you know, so many of them do that uh, Egyptian walking thing from um, oh God, his name just went out of my head. Walk Like an Egyptian. You know that guy? No. Oh, that's a song. But, but the comedian, Steve Martin. You know, they're doing it. I mean, here, here are these Americans at the pyramids walking like an Egyptian. It's like, oh my God, I am mortified. <laughs> but the interesting thing, the most interesting part of the film, was they all went to this spiritual or, or religious ritual called Zar. It's not Muslim exactly, though it's very popular among hip urban Muslims. It comes from Africa. And what Zar is, is this, you sit in a circle, there's phenomenal Middle Eastern drumming going on, uh, stringed instruments, the, the music is fantastic, and there's just chanting and dancing. And Everyone is, it's like all of the Americans are totally into this. It's very cool. I mean, you watch it, and you want to get up and dance, too. And they're not being silly. They're not being uh, sarcastic. They're not making fun of, the, of their, the event. They're really engaged with it. And then a Muslim couple, because they, they took the Americans and they coupled them with um, Egyptian uh, counterparts. So a very orthodox Muslim couple get up and they walk out. And uh, Tariq, the guy who made the film, follows them with a camera. And they say, this is not Islam. And the way, the, way, the way they know that is they're using the wrong kind of drum. <laughs> so if I understood it, I saw, watched the movie twice. That's what it sounded like to me. But the, the czar is an invocation of saints. And from the point of view of these strict father Muslims, you don't pray to saints. That's very Catholic, that's very Sufi, but, but they don't do that. And so they walked out, and they just, that was it. But they, that, was, that was all they did, they just walked out. <clears throat> Later, people asked, the Americans asked, why did they leave? And they were told the answer. And then the three Christians went apoplectic. They were so scared that they had been involved in some kind of satanic worship. <laughs> And so they gathered with a camera watching them because they had no, it wasn't like they were embarrassed that they were scared. They were right, this is, this is what God wants. So they, they started praying. Dear Father God, Lord Jesus, you know, forgive us. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, 
open the hearts of these uh, uh, the czar the people and let them know your love. And they were going on and on and on. <clears throat> but mostly, they were praying to their God to protect them from the Satan that they, were, they imagined they were invoking with this amazing dance and music. The reason I bring this, the movie into it is that these people were trying to be open and liberal and loving, and yet they, they couldn't do it. Now, they were, the most evangel- they were the most strict father God of the group, but still, they were trying so, they were consciously trying so hard to get out of that strict box, but they couldn't do it. When they really were confronted with something they knew wasn't the norm, meaning their own belief system, they zipped right back into the box, named the other Satan, and then had to do this whole prayer thing to protect them. But that also is a cheap shot. It's easy to get, you know that's going to happen. Now, I don't think that's why Tariq invited them. But if you think about it for two seconds, you know that's going to happen. It's just not, it's so far out of their comfort zone. I I would have thought Islam itself was out of their comfort zone. Egypt itself was out of their comfort zone. But this was just so far out of their comfort zone, they they only pulled into their shell and, and had to defend themselves. Because the strict father God and the strict father God morality is just too powerful to simply walk away from. So I'm in D.C., D.C. It was right after the gay pride parade. Now, I'd been to that parade before in, in D.C., and it's, it's a wild celebration of just humanity, as far as I can tell. This year, anyone who displayed Jewish symbolism was expelled from the parade. You couldn't have a, gay, uh, you know, a rainbow flag with a Jewish star on it. The, the leadership of the gay pride parade associated any Jewish symbol with Israel. They associated Israel with uh, the oppression of Palestinians, and therefore there was no place for that in their parade. The irony is, is overwhelming, given that Israel is the only country in the Middle East that has its own gay pride parade. Right? There's a gay underground that takes LBGTQI people out of Palestine and gets them into Tel Aviv. I mean, you don't want to be gay in, in Jerusalem necessarily, right? But Tel Aviv is an open, liberal, European, at its best, city. So the irony of, of rejecting the one uh, country in the Middle East that, it, that uh, has its own gay pride parade in the Washington, D.C. gay pride parade is, is amazing. But... Even more, they didn't ask, what's your theory, what's your, what are your politics? A lot of the people who simply wanted to be Jewish and gay, and openly so regarding both, the assumption was that they are pro-Israel. That's not necessarily the case. Lots of Jews are not pro-Israel when pro-Israel means anti-Palestine, or, or pro the oppression of the Palestinian or the occupation and all that stuff. That's, not, that's just not actually, that's not factual. So they simply said, if you're a Jew, you're out. I mean, that's just pure anti-Semitism. That's not anti-Israel. That's anti-Semitism. If you identify as a Jew, you cannot be part of our, our thing. And those are liberals. Those are more than liberals. Those are the woke. 
those are the woke. So if you take what Lakoff wrote about the conservatives and change it just a little, you get this. Many of the woke start with a view of reality that makes their ideology seem both natural and good. Yet they too worship an ultimate strict father, all good and all powerful, at the top of a natural hierarchy in which morality is linked with power. Their God, you can call it wokeness or the the awoke one, I mean, whatever you want to call it, uh, wants good people to be in charge. Virtue is to be rewarded with power. I mean, you see, it's the same as what he wrote before. God, therefore, wants a hierarchical society in which there are moral authorities who should be obeyed in each domain. And the moral authority is the woke or the most woke, or those who claim to be the most woke among all the woke. The woke make laws, commandments, defining right and wrong. One must have discipline to follow their commandments. They are punitive. They punish those who do not follow their commandments and reward those who do. Following their laws takes discipline. Those who are disciplined enough to be moral are disciplined enough to become prosperous and powerful in the movement, whatever movement we have to be talking about. The idea is is that whether we're talking about super conservative, I was going to say Christians, but it could be just, in Lakoff's mind, just super conservatives follow a strict father God, or you're talking about the woke, they have their own equivalent of the strict father God. They're not going to use that terminology. They won't use the word father. They may not use the word God, but it's no less strict and hierarchical. It's no less about an elite controlling uh, what is considered moral and punishing those who they consider immoral and rewarding those who they consider moral. The mindset, uh, and I'm taking two extremes here, but I'm going to suggest it just permeates the whole spectrum. The mindset of these extremes, anyway, is the same. It's just who's in and who's out changes, the language changes. But the mindset itself doesn't change. So the question is, and I'm going to leave you with the question, and we'll talk about it in the second hour. The question is, is there a way out of strict father God morality? And, and it's not simply getting rid of the words father God. That's not going to do it. Is there a way out of the hierarchy? Is there a way out of the, you know, the, the good and the bad, where the good defines who's the bad. Can we get out of that dichotomy? Can we break that kind of um, posturing? So I would like to think that I'm preaching to the choir, right? That Unitarians, Universalists, would be those people. And I, I don't even imagine I'm wrong. But when I go back, I was looking at uh, the early founding of the country, this country, and noticing two things. The Christianity that are, you know, when when conservative Christians look at the founding uh, fathers, mothers of, of the nation and say, oh, it's a Christian nation, the Christianity they're imagining isn't the deism of Emerson or the Unitarianism of, of Emerson. They're thinking of their own strict, they're, they're projecting into the past, or actually they're just taking the Puritans and saying, no, the Puritans are the true founders. And, and they want a new kind of 
contemporary Puritanism. They don't want, uh, oh, let's, let's go back to our Christian roots, which means New England, which means overwhelmingly Unitarian. No, they don't want to do that. Well, let's go back to Plymouth Rock, and if we're going to move a little forward, let's go to the Salem Witch Trials. That's about, <laughs> that's about as liberal as we're going to go. <clears throat> but the, so, so it's... The, but, but I'm wondering if you could go to the New England Unitarian, uh, and, and of course no one's perfect, I'm not saying they're perfect, but could you go to that liberal kind of religion? And I don't, I don't know if it's possible to say, no, the founding ideals of, uh, that we want you know, to, we're going to make America great again by becoming universalists and Unitarians. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I don't think that's how it works. You take Israel, for example, the founding of Israel. Israel was founded as a reaction, part of Israel anyway, as a reaction against strict father God. Strict father God said, no, you can't have a state. I'll tell you when you can have a state. The founders from the 1800s until the founding of the country in, in late 40s, 48, 49, 48, 49, whatever it is, what is it? 48, okay. So the founding of the country in 48, these were all secular Zionists. These were people who had left God far behind. They were not interested in religion. They thought religion was dead. Religion would die out. They were looking for a secular socialist utopia. That's what they had in mind. As soon as the state gets established, they realize they've got these religious people they need to deal with. So they give them uh, what they thought was innocuous place in society because the, the early founders thought these people are going to die out. Nobody wants to be orthodox anymore. Nobody wants to, to do that. Most of the orthodox Jews were killed in the Holocaust anyway. The few who are left, they don't pose any threat to our secular um, utopia. Turned out that secular people do things other than make babies, whereas orthodox people make lots of babies. And there's, there's just a growing population, and they're getting more and more and more power, and they're actually splitting Israel into warring camps, the secular versus the religious. You can't keep the strict father God down. <laughs> That's the idea. Even when you start out to create a revolution, strict father God comes back. Even when you, know, you, you think we're moving in this liberal, democratic way in the United States, we seem to be going backwards, back to the strict Father God. Can, so here's my, my final question, and I'll stop. Is liberal religion a fluke? Is liberalism a fluke? Are people essentially illiberal? Are, are people essentially in need of or hungry for, or whatever you want to say, a strict father God? If the, if the answer is no, well, then okay, now we have to figure out why we're not the biggest church in Murfreesboro. Uh, if the answer is yes, then we have to figure out, so what role do we play as liberals? So I'm going to leave those questions for a second hour, and again, happy Father's Day. <laughs>